Let's uh, read God's Word, Genesis chapter 17. It is printed for you in the bulletin. It's also in the Pew Bible. If you're at home, I encourage you to open your Bible. It's always good to have a Bible open in front of you. I'm going to read all of Genesis 17. This is God's Word, and it's Genesis 17. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you... You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise in the flesh of your foreskins, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring... Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations, kingdoms of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah, your son, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with God, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us.
Our great God, these are familiar words at some level, but they are so strange and so distant to us in time and sentiment. But we pray that these words, which are so important, that you would take them and not just apply them to our minds, but to our hearts and to our lives. We can only do this if your spirit shows up. So come, Lord Jesus, be with us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, uh, let me, uh, so uh, we're going on sabbatical, I just told you about this, right, okay, and um, we have a map in our home, it's actually one of those school, old school maps that you can kind of flip over, and one of them happens to be the state of Texas, uh, one of them is the world, and it was actually on the world, but we actually flipped it a couple of weeks ago to show uh, America, there's one of the 50 states of the lower 48. And we flipped it to that page. And the reason is, is because we wanted to be able to show our son, Peter, this is where we are. This is where we're going. We're going to drive to see Nana and Papa in Texas. And then we're going to drive, Daddy's going to drive to California. And we're kind of, we want to, we want to see it's a sign, right, of, of where we're headed on our sabbatical. We wanted it in our kitchen in front of our son so we could kind of see where we're going. And uh, the reality is uh, we look at that map every day, in fact, with increasingly intensity because that sign, that sign has become, that map, which is a sign, has become something that is pointing us forward to something uh, that we're about to live into. So as I talk about the wilderness and the desert, I imagine myself driving across the Sonoran Desert, which I will be doing in just a few weeks uh, by myself. That map has become a sign, and the more we look at it, the closer we come to the reality that will be our sabbatical. Well, this morning we're looking at Genesis 17. And Genesis 17 is packed, and there's several ways I thought about going with this sermon. Uh, the way that I love what Chris did in the children's sermon, the idea of names. It's real interesting if you look real quickly. This, I almost made a whole sermon. This, I'm going to give you a sermon in 45 seconds. Uh, because at the beginning, the name, God gives himself a name. He calls himself El Shaddai, God Almighty. God names himself right there in verse 1. And if you're from a Christian subculture of a certain generation, that brings to mind an old Amy Grant sign. Uh, El Sh- I'm not going to do it. Um, some of you, that means, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, but then uh, God renames Abram. He calls him Abraham, which means a father of a multitude. He renames Sarah from Sarai to Sarah. And then he names their son, their unborn son, Isaac, which means he laughs. He laughs, which is ironic because in this passage, Abraham laughs at God. In the next passage, we'll look at this next week, Genesis 18, Sarah laughs. And their laughs are not the ha-ha funny laughs, okay? Those are not the laughs that Abram and Sarah, they're the laugh of grief, they're the laugh of doubt, they're the laugh of cynicism. And yet despite those sentiments, God calls their son Isaac which means laughter. He laughs. God deals with us in our doubts, our cynicism and our grief. That'd be a fun sermon to preach. But it's pretty clear if you're going to preach on one big idea for each passage, it's pretty clear if you just look at the vocabulary and the word choice what the big idea in Genesis 17 is, and that is covenant. If you are listening carefully, you can go back and count the word covenant occurs 13 times, 13 times in those verses. So it's pretty clear that covenant is the big idea. Now, covenant is this huge and misunderstood idea that's so important to understand. If you're going to understand the Bible, you have to understand the idea of covenant, okay? Theologians talk about the covenant of redemption and the covenant of creation, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and those are all important. But more important are the actual covenants of Scripture. 
Okay, uh, Hosea, the prophet Hosea suggests that there's a covenant uh, with Adam and Eve. And then we know that there's a covenant with Noah. Here this morning we look at the covenant with Abraham. Later there'll be a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David. And Jeremiah 31 speaks of a new covenant which points forward to the covenant that is the reality of Jesus. Okay, now something really important. Uh, all those covenants are actually part of one covenant. Okay, they're further manifestations, further realizations of one covenant. I like to think of it as a wedge. Like there's the covenant with Adam, and then it gets a little wider. We understand a little bit more about God's relationship with us with the covenant of Noah, Abram, David, right, all down the right till Jesus, right? So we understand all one covenant. So important to understand. But what is a covenant? I mean, it actually, the word, we don't use it very often, so it actually even slips my mind. And so I did the right thing this week, and I asked Pastor Nick. I said, Nick, what is a covenant? What's your definition? He gave a great definition. He said, a covenant, he just rattled this off like this. He said, it's an agreement between two parties with obligations and promises, blessings for fulfillment, and curses for breaking. I was like, that's good. That's really good. Um, the only thing I would add to it is O. Palmer Robertson, who wrote a very good and actually quite accessible book on the covenants called Christ of the Covenants. And he defines a covenant, O. Palmer Robertson does, as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Um, I actually think Nick's definition is better than Palmer Robertson's. Um, but if you put them together, that's kind of where I'm headed this morning, okay? Now, hold on, all right? Now, oftentimes... Oftentimes, there is a sign or a seal of the covenant. And punchline, the more you look at the sign, this goes back to my map, the more you look at the sign of the covenant, the closer the reality of the covenant comes. The more we look at that map, our sabbatical gets closer. The more we look at the sign of the covenant, the closer the reality of the covenant. Okay, so hold on to that. Now, the most obvious uh, correlation in our world is the covenant of marriage. Even if you are not married, you understand the principles of marriage. And think about how a marriage works. A marriage is a covenant. It's not just like you're going together, right? You're, you're married. It's a covenant. And what makes it a covenant are the vows you take, okay? You stand before, two people stand before each other, and they make these promises to one another, okay? And they're staggering promises. If you, next time you go to a wedding, just think about what you're saying. You're saying, you know, if you really get poor or if you really get sick or if things really get bad for you, I'm going to be there for you, okay? Uh, it's not like this, oh, I love you so much. You think that, no. But it's like all these staggering promises, I'm going to be there for you no matter what happens to you. But then there are benefits of that promise, right? There are benefits. There's the benefit of intimacy and exclusivity and there's the benefit of trust and the benefit of freedom, in the covenant of marriage, there's obligations. There's the obligation of fidelity. There's the obligation of emotional availability. There's the obligation of putting the other person above all other persons on the planet. And there are consequences. Like any covenant, there are consequences for breaking a marriage covenant. And it's not just divorce. It includes divorce. But if you break your covenant by not putting the other person first, for instance, your marriage will suffer. You'll lose trust, intimacy, exclusivity. There's consequences for breaking the covenant. But then, of course, there's the sign. And, you know, here's my sign. Here's the sign of the covenant. Allison gave me this, a wedding ring, right? And, you know, when you watch the movies and on TV, you know, when somebody's going to break their covenant, you know, they're in their hotel room and they're thinking about going down to the bar, you know, they, what do they do? They take their ring off and they put it in their pocket or they leave it on their shelf and they go downstairs. But, the, you know, as I thought about this week in covenants and signs, this is not so much my promise to my wife this is actually her promise to me. And so as I look at that, yeah, Marshall, be a good husband, do the right thing. But it's also a sign that there is a person in this world who's made a promise, who's made a promise to me. Which is one of the things that makes infidelity so sad because it's not just that we are breaking promises to another, 
But we're forgetting the promises that have been made to us. Okay, a sign, a covenant. Okay? Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago or you were watching online, Nick Perrin preached on Genesis 15, the uh, president of Trinity, and he, um, he pointed out that in the ancient Near East, which is a fancy way of saying during Abraham's day, uh, a covenant usually involved a greater and a lesser party, right? There was the greater party uh, who promised protection and provision, and then the lesser party would have promised, you know, uh, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be loyal. Basically, I'm going to serve in your army if you need me. The covenant in Abraham's time, there's a list of stipulations, and when the terms were agreed to, I know this is a lot of information, when the terms were agreed to, the two parties would tear an animal apart and the two parties would together walk between the parts saying, if I don't keep my part, if I don't do my stipulations, then I should be torn apart like this animal. If you break the covenant, if I break the covenant, you'll be torn apart like this animal, right? Which is exactly what happens in Genesis chapter 15 with Abram except for the fact that God puts Abraham asleep outside the parts of the animal, and God appears as a smoking fire pot and by himself passes between the parts, suggesting and telling us that, Abram, if and when you break the covenant, I will be the one who keeps the covenant and, in fact, is torn apart for your faithlessness to the covenant. Which is to say, Genesis 15 is is pointing forward to the work of Christ. We break the covenant. Christ keeps the covenant by being torn apart for us. More on that in a moment. Now, up until now, up until now, when we talk about covenants with Abraham, it's all been one way. It's all been God's grace, God initiating, God doing the, God is doing everything. It's all one way. It's almost felt like, if you've been reading carefully, that Abraham's response doesn't matter. It's all about God being fed. God passes between the parts. Abraham's, you know, asleep on the side. Does Abraham's behavior even matter? Well, here in Genesis 17, we start to see that something is required of Abraham which is to say there are obligations, or to say it another way, the covenant is not just one way. It's a two-way street. Now, it's asymmetrical. That's a big word to use on a Sunday morning when it's zero degrees out, your brain is frozen. But asymmetrical is important because your marriage is actually, it's a symmetrical. Two equal parties have come together, okay? That's not what this covenant is. This is the far greater reality of who God is coming to us. Okay, it's asymmetrical, but it is two-way. We do have responsibilities. Okay? Now, that's all prelude. That's a lot of information. That's a lot of theology, frankly. That's a lot of Bible. Uh, Let me give you the outline. It'll even bore you even more, okay? Listen to this. Here's the outline. The promises of the covenant. This is important, though. I'll tell you why in just 30 seconds. The promises of the covenant. The obligations of the covenant. Think about a marriage. The consequences of the covenant. And the sign of the covenant. Now, I know that's a boring outline. I know it is. I chose it intentionally, though, because if you can get those four things into your mind, it's like having hooks into your brain to understand what a covenant is. And if you're like me, it kind of just kind of slips in and out. What is a covenant with God? But it's, it's so important to understand the nature of a covenant because there's these two big ideas in Scripture which are thematic all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And if you can get these two themes, you can understand the Bible. You can pick up any chapter and start to understand where you are in redemptive history. And those two ideas are the kingdom of God and the covenant. Okay? So you've got to understand this. You've got to understand this to be able to read the Bible, to be able to read the Bible well, I should say. Okay, so the covenant, okay? Everybody with me? We good? All right? 
All right, okay, thanks, 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 appreciate that. All right, now, so first, the promises of the covenant. Promises of the covenant. So after 13 years, verse 1, God appears again and he speaks to Abraham, okay? And God is again initiating, okay? God, there is no relationship in Scripture or any time in history where God is not the initiator of the relationship. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks creation into existence. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. In Genesis 15, it's God who initiates. And here in Genesis 17, even though it's two ways, we will see God is the initiator of the covenant. He comes to Abraham. And he makes these staggering promises. He makes these staggering promises before Abraham can even say a word. Verse 6, he says, Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. The second half of verse 6, he says, I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Now think about this. America is almost 250 years old. England is 1,000 years old. The Jews have been around for 4,000 years. There's nothing like it in the history of the world. God has been faithful to this promise, to this man, thousands of years ago. He goes on. He's not done promising. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant. Verse 8, I will give you and your offspring this land. The second half, verse 8, I will be your God, I will be their God. And then verse 16, I will give you a son. And here's the good news, friends, which should encourage all of us. God keeps all of his promises. God keeps all of his promises. Now, it's not on our timetable. But now, some of these promises, like the son, are unique to Abraham. But all the other ones, they're for us too, even the land. And it's not just a sandy dust box over in the Middle East. God is promising us the whole world. The, the, the reality of the end of time in Revelation is that heaven will come down from earth so the whole earth will be the Lord's and the whole earth will be the people of God's. The covenant is ours. And we will be God's people. He will be our God. God makes his promises. God keeps his promises. Not always on our timetable, but he always keeps the promise, keeps his word. So those are the promises of the covenant. Well, second... Let's look at the obligations of the covenant. And there are three obligations. We'll talk about two now. There's the relational, the ethical, and then there's the ritual obligation, which I'll talk about under the sign at the end of the sermon. Okay? But the relational and the ethical. Look with me at verse 1, the second half of verse 1. I am God Almighty, God says. Walk before me, that's relational, and be blameless. That's ethical. Relational, Walk before me, ethical, be blameless. Okay, first the relational. Walk before me. What is God saying? This is, I just wish we could get this. Well, you know what God's saying to Abram? Be my friend. Walk with me. Be with me. Know me. Be my friend. You see, this obligation is an invitation to a relationship with the most amazing being in all of time. He's powerful. He's loving. He's kind. He's creative. He is God. And he comes to Abram and he comes to you and me and he says, walk with me. It's an obligation that is the greatest invitation imaginable. And it is real and it is available. Be with me. Be my friend. But he also says, secondly, be blameless. Walk with me and be blameless or be pure. You know what God's saying? He's saying, be like me, holy, pure, okay? Be, with, be like me, holy and pure. And here's the reality. He, there are obligations. There are obligations in any relationship requires obedience to certain terms. Or another way of saying it, any relationship has certain Obligations. Let's go back to our illustration of marriage as a covenant, okay? 
Um, what, I mean, I have an obligation to be faithful to my wife, okay? To, to not cheat, right? And she to me. But it's not just at that level. It's not, that's not my only obligation, right? Um, what if I repeatedly forgot her birthday or our anniversary, right? Or my wife loves coffee with cream and sugar, you know? She loves, like, but what if I came to her every morning and said, hey, babe, here's your black coffee, <laughs> Like, morning, no, right? Who she is, who she is has to inform my obligations, how I relate to her. And an obligation of my marriage is coffee with cream and sugar, right? Now, that's self-evident with our spouse, right? That's self-evident. But what about God, right? What about God? What happens to our relationship? We forget about our obligations. I mean, we worship comfort, we worship our own pleasure. We worship materialism. We worship the good old USA. We worship all these other things. And we forget about God. We cheat on God. We forget the Lord's Day worship, right? We forget. I mean, people come and they say, I feel so far from God. I feel so far from God's people. I feel so far from the church. And they're not worshiping online. They're not worshiping in person. They're not in the way. I mean, like, I'm like, ah, what do you, I mean, there, any relationship is a two-way street, Right? And there are obligations, but the obligations are under, unto a depth of relationship. Our obligations are to worship God, to give financially, to give of our time, and to be in fellowship with one another. But understand, the obligations are always unto, unto the relationship, okay? Let's thought, let, me, let me spell this out just a little bit, the obligation and the relationship. Now, some mornings... Some mornings I wake up and I just feel in love with my wife. You know, I just, I'm like, man, I love my wife. She always gets up before me, but I always go and I try to fill her coffee cup, right? I'm like, I feel good. Let me get you more, you know, cream and sugar, just the amount. Of, I do it better than she does. I make her, her coffee better than she does. Cream and sugar, and I take it back. Baby, I love you so much. Here's your coffee, right? I'm every morning. No, no, <laughs> no. Some mornings I don't feel like that, right? Right? But the obligation, the actual doing it, what does it do? I take the coffee. What does it do? It warms the heart. You see, it's like a circle, the obligation and the relationship. Sometimes you feel like it. Sometimes you don't. But sometimes when you do it, you feel like it. You see, the obligation is always unto relationship. We're not robots. Yes, God, he doesn't make us robots. He gives us things to do that we might walk with him, that we might be with him, that we might be his friend. The obligations of the covenant, as much as anything, is, they're not something to hold us down. They're an invitation to a deeper and more profound relationship. It is real and it is available. So we've seen the promises, we've seen the obligations. The fact of obligations entails and implies that there are consequences. Now there's only one line in this uh, passage that has, that's about consequences, but it's harrowing. Look with me at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised and their flesh or his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Cut off from the people. And to be cut off from the people is to be cut off from the people's God. Now the focus of this passage is not judgment. Frankly, the focus of this church is not judgment. And after all, the name on the door is grace. But judgment, friends, is real. It is real. And, and God's covenant requires obedience and if those, that obedience, those obligations are not met, there are, there are consequences, including judgment. To persistently fail is to face the consequences. 
I'm reading through the Bible in 2021. It's an Old Testament, New Testament plan. And my New Testament reading this week included uh, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, for my money, is the scariest chapter in the entire Bible. It's Jesus speaking. Uh, it's basically divided into three parts. In the first part, he is addressing people who are not ready, who are not watching for the Messiah. The parable of the virgins who are trimming the oil. The second part of Matthew 25 is those who have not been faithful with the gifts they've been given. The parable of the talents. And then the third part of Matthew 25 is the parable of the sheep and goats. It's about those who have not been merciful to those with less than they have. And they are cast out into utter darkness in each of the three scenarios. It's the most terrifying passage in the scriptures. Judgment is real. There are consequences for not uh, following God for not heeding to the obligations of the covenant on a persistent basis. Okay? Promises, obligations, consequences. Let's finally talk about this strange sign, the sign of circumcision. Now I'm going to assume that most of you know uh, what is involved in male circumcision. I'm going to trust the parents to take over on that part. Um, I have a five-year-old, which means that five years ago I witnessed this. Uh, there was blood and there was pain and there were tears. Now, interestingly, in the ancient Near East, in Abram's time, Abraham's time, this was done later in life, more uh, like Ishmael's age, age 13, is a rite of passage. So it's unique in the Jewish context that it was done uh, to babies eight days old. Uh, we know that it's extensive. It covered also the females. Uh, it wasn't, uh, they weren't circumcised, but it, they were covered in the covenant. Uh, but also, interestingly, there's a racial component. There is, there is no racial component to circumcision for God's people. It's for everybody in Abraham's house, and it's also socioeconomic. Uh, everybody who is in his house, no matter what their status, is included, okay? So it's an inclusive and extensive uh, covenant, the covenant of circumcision. Now, in the New Testament, I don't have time to develop this. If you want to ask me questions about this, in the coffee hour, this sign was changed and applied to baptism, okay? Covenant baptism, which for believers, adults coming to faith or infants, this passage, uh, this, this teaching on the sign of circumcision was given uh, and changed to baptism. So circumcision is no, longer, uh, is no longer required. Okay, now at least two questions about this sign, though, here in Genesis 17. First, why this sign? Why the sign of circumcision? Well, the Bible is not real clear. It doesn't say. I don't know. But here's my suspicion. I think this was the sign because it was a reminder particularly to Abraham at his most tender and vulnerable place and also the place by which the seed of Isaac would come. He couldn't get around this. It was tender, it was vulnerable, and it was actually the place where God would meet the promise of giving him a son. That's my best guess as to why this sign. But maybe more interesting, what is this a sign of, this sign of circumcision? Well, it's a sign of several things. First of all, it's a sign of commitment to God. It's also a sign of death to self. If I had more time, I'd flip us over to Deuteronomy chapter 10, uh, where it basically says that Simon, excuse me, circumcision is tied to doing justice practicing mercy and walking humbly with our God. Circumcision is a sign that we're called to die to ourselves, to give our life away. But then think very literally, what is the sign? It's a sign that involves blood and flesh, which is life. But here's the interesting thing. It's a sign that is given for us and it's given to us, but this is ultimately a sign of what would happen to God in the person of Jesus. Follow the blood. 
Go back to Genesis chapter 3, all right? Don't turn there, but follow me in my thinking, okay? Adam and Eve, after they have sinned, what is the first shedding of blood? God kills an animal and covers Adam and Eve with the skin of that animal, right? Genesis chapter 15, animals are torn apart and God is a smoking fire pot passes between the pieces. In John, Genesis 17, here we have the sign of blood given to children and the offspring of Israel. It's a sign for us. But ultimately, it was Jesus who was torn apart. Ultimately, it was Jesus who bled. Ultimately, it was Jesus who gave his life as a ransom for many. You see, this sign, which was given to God's people, was actually pointing forward to what Jesus would do for all of us. And it's actually what unites us to the children of Abraham. Because we are children of Abraham by faith, even if we are not actually Jews. You see, the covenant sign shows the lengths to which God will go for us. Because the blood that was shed points forward to Christ, who will shed his blood on our behalf and for us. So we look to the sign. So we look to the sign to hasten the coming reality. I keep looking on that map on my wall. I can almost taste our sabbatical. (laughs) We look to the sign. We look to the sign, and step by step, we get closer to the reality of the forgiveness of sins fully and finally, the redemption of our bodies, the promise that God gives to us. In just a moment at the Lord's table, we'll talk a bit about this sign and this sacrament and what it means to us. But let me pray for us. Our great God, we thank you that in these strange and odd passages from the Old Testament, You teach us something about the way you relate to us in the 21st century, giving us hope and a promise. And we pray that just now for Christ's sake. Amen.